I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. There is probably no single issue that triggers more widespread and heated debate amongst more people than the issue of Israel and Palestine. It is such a complicated issue. It is one steeped in so much complex and convoluted history It is one with so many points of view, and it is one that has not just triggered endless rounds of debate, but has triggered endless rounds of violence. When we ask why the situation in the Middle East seems so far from ever being solved, part of the answer, or the blame, you might say, lies with the international community. The nations that proposed the partition of Palestine the United Nations that backed it, and then the international community that backed away from the ultimate objective of the plan, that being a two-state solution, a Jewish and an Arab state. Canada was right there in the center of the partition of Palestine and played a key role in helping to find what it thought might be a solution to the growing violence in the Middle East. But it became a solution That was only ever partially realized. It became no solution at all. This is Season 9, Episode 5, Canada and the Partition of Palestine. Today's book recommendation is titled Canada's Foreign Policy and the Arab-Israeli Conflict by author Cameron K.M. Mondell, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing in 2022. Before we dive into Canada's role in the partition of Palestine, it's vital that we understand a brief history of the region prior to 1948. The area that is Palestine-Israel today was at one point simply known as Palestine, and was for centuries part of the Ottoman Empire. 
During the First World War, the Ottoman Empire joined sides with the Central Powers, so Germany and Austro-Hungary. And by 1918, not only was the Ottoman Empire now part of the defeated side, but the empire itself had collapsed. In the aftermath of the war, Palestine was placed under British rule with a British military occupation that lasted until 1920, and then a British civilian administration, which lasted from 1920 until the late 1940s. It was under the British that the chaotic and oftentimes violent march towards the creation of Israel occurred. The first major step in the Zionist movement, that is the movement to secure a recognized homeland for the Jewish people, occurred with the controversial Balfour Declaration in November 1917. The Balfour Declaration was a letter written from Arthur Balfour, the then British Foreign Secretary, to Lord Rothschild, an aristocrat and prominent figure in British Zionist circles. Now, in this letter, Balfour stated, and I quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. For those in the Zionist movement, this was seen as Britain throwing their support behind the cause of the creation of a Jewish state, meaning they interpreted the phrasing national home as such. It's important to note, though, that at the time, 85% of the residences of Palestine were Palestinian Arabs. Recognizing this, the British also pledged to uphold the rights and privileges of the non-Jewish population in Palestine. Clearly, from the get-go, this equal obligation, support a Jewish national home and respecting the rights of non-Jewish Palestinians, posed an immense challenge and, frankly, is still at the core of tension today. In July 1920, Palestine passed from a British military administration to a civilian one, while also gaining the classification of a Class A mandate by the League of Nations. This Class A designation meant that Britain was legally responsible for developing the region economically, socially, and politically to a point where sovereignty could eventually be handed over and an independent country emerge. But even under this British civilian administration, violence periodically erupted between Jewish and Arab Palestinian communities. In 1922, Winston Churchill sought to clarify Britain's position on the Palestinian question in his white paper of that same year. Effectively, this white paper said that the establishment of a Jewish national home should not impose a Jewish nationality on the inhabitants of Palestine, i.e. Palestine as a whole, so the entire territory, should not be converted into a Jewish national home. But such a home should be founded somewhere within Palestine. Now, this was meant to remove ambiguities stemming from the Balfour Declaration, but as you may already tell, it did nothing of the sort. Through the course of the 1920s, Britain was caught between the growing Zionist movement who sought to claim Palestine as their home 
and resistance to this movement by the Arab population of Palestine who claimed the right of ownership based on their historical possession of the region. Now, through the interwar period, the situation became more tense as there were successive waves of Jewish immigration into Palestine. For instance, from 1924 to 1926, about 50,000 Jews immigrated from Eastern Europe, most of them from the heavily anti-Semitic Poland. During the 1930s, and I'm sure you all know where we're going with this, as Hitler's Nazi party enacted increasingly anti-Semitic policies, immigration to Palestine increased. Between 1933, the year Hitler came to power, and 1937, the Jewish population of Palestine doubled as German and other Central European Jews fled the Reich. This immigration sparked a renewal of tension and violence between Jewish and Arab-Palestinian groups. While the British discussed potentially suspending Jewish immigration, Zionist groups lobbied against such a move, and no British policy towards immigration was ever seriously enacted. Despite the growing Jewish population, at its absolute peak pre-partition, the community itself never accounted for more than one-third of the total population of Palestine. By the latter half of the 1930s, a variety of Palestinian groups had emerged seeking to challenge the growing Zionist movement. Some of these groups were more moderate in their approach, while others embraced far more violent and radical means. Some of these groups extended their focus to the British imperial mandate and even to the entrenched traditional Arab leadership. So the key here is that by the 1930s, even within the Arab community, there was no homogenous approach to the Zionist issue. Different groups sought different means to different ends. In 1937, in response to a massive Arab strike, and continual periodic violence that saw hundreds of people killed, the British sent a commission to Palestine, one of many commissions during this period, to try and solve the issue within Palestine itself. The Peel Commission, as it became known, recommended that the British mandate be terminated and Palestine turned into an Arab and Jewish state, so the two-state solution. Both Arab and Zionist leaders rejected the Peel Commission's proposal. Arab leaders felt that this would abandon the Arab communities that would become part of the new Jewish state, and Zionist leaders felt that the territory to be given to the new Jewish state was not adequate enough. In October 1937, the British District Commissioner for Galilee was assassinated by Arab attackers. And this signaled an escalation in the growing resistance to British authority. In response to this, the British sent 20,000 troops into Palestine. And in the violence that ensued, 3,000 Arabs, 2,000 Jews, and 600 British were killed as fighting raged between Arab, Zionist, and British forces. With another war looming in Europe, Many in Britain felt that Britain's Middle East interests, particularly the oil fields of Iraq and, of course, the Suez Canal, 
were going to be vital to the coming war, and thus they needed to be protected. As a result, to placate the Arab communities in the region, Britain released another white paper, this time the White Paper of 1939, and this stated, and I quote, His Majesty's government therefore now declares unequivocally that it is not part of their policy that Palestine should become a Jewish state. This same white paper also sought to limit Jewish immigration into Palestine. Of course, the entire issue changed irrevocably with Hitler's genocidal campaign against the Jewish people of Europe. Not only were millions of Jews murdered, but millions were also displaced. Yet, for many of those that had survived the camps, the ghettos, the death squads, there was little incentive to return to their homes. And this meant a greater desire to move to Palestine. Now, in Palestine during the war, in preparation for a potential Axis invasion of the region, the British authority worked closely with a Jewish military organization called Haganah. While the Axis threat never materialized, the Axis forces were stopped at the Second Battle of El Alamein in November 1942, this cooperation led to the Haganah becoming very well-armed and very knowledgeable about the British military network in Palestine, something that would come in very handy in the years to come. Now, other more radical Jewish organizations existed as well, such as the Ergen and the Lehi, also known as the Stern Gang. And both these groups carried out attacks on Arab and British personnel and positions. In 1944, for instance, the Stern Gang assassinated Lord Moyne, who was the British Minister of State for the Middle East. It was clear by the end of the Second World War that the Palestinian question was nowhere near being solved, and the British sought international support in their efforts to find a solution. So who better than the new superpower? Thus, in October of 1945, the United Kingdom formally requested that the United States join in the effort to finding a solution, and this resulted in the creation of the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry. The committee immediately endorsed the immigration of 100,000 Jewish refugees into Palestine, and this committee's endorsement was publicly backed by U.S. President Harry Truman. It's clear that by the end of the war, Palestine was effectively turned into a series of armed camps. There were three underground Jewish armies, a variety of armed Arab groups, and of course, the British military. All of these controlling specific territory within Palestine. And every day, Arab, Jewish, and British personnel were dying. At times, the British even having to defend against both Arab and Jewish attacks. And it felt like law and order in Palestine was completely breaking down. And it was also clear that Britain no longer wanted to carry the heavy burden of finding a solution to the Palestinian issue. And thus, the United Nations, newly formed, was asked to step in as the British period of mandate control was coming to an end. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at Curious Canadian History, we never want a good story's momentum broken up. But we really, really rely on advertisement for the financial support needed to continue to make this. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Curious Canadian History, you can access all our episodes ad-free by just donating $1 or 2 bucks to the podcast. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without the ads. Patreon even has an app. So you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps and have every new CCH episode right there at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So let's now move our attention to Canada. When everything kicked off with the Balfour Declaration back in 1917, Canada was a self-governing dominion within the British Empire. It did not run its own foreign policy. London ran it. In fact, Great Britain's declaration of war against Germany in 1914 meant Canada was automatically at war. In the aftermath of the First World War, Canada underwent a process of securing its right to controlling its own foreign policy. This is something we actually covered back in Season 4, Episode 17, Subordinate No More. But in general, when it came to the issue of Palestine, Canada remained silent. For most Canadian politicians, this was a British problem. Even with the White Paper of 1939, Canada remained pretty silent on the issue as a whole. Now, Canada's interaction with the Middle East certainly expanded during the interwar period. In 1930, Canada opened a trade commission office in Cairo. And from this trade commission, further diplomatic connections were made with the various regions, nations, and peoples of the Middle East. For instance, in 1935, Canada and France secured a trade treaty which made France a most favored nation in regards to tariff concessions. And this meant that Syria and Lebanon, which were both French mandates at the time, were included in this, thus expanding Canada's connections to those regions. In 1948, Canada set up its first Canadian embassy in the Middle East when it opened one in Ankara, Turkey. So the period of the 1930s into the 1940s certainly saw Canada expand its presence in the Middle East. But interestingly, it continued to remain quite silent on the Palestinian question. And frankly, the Middle East in general was low on Canada's foreign policy priorities. A lot of this stems from the fact that trade with the Middle East was minimal. 
1946, for instance, Canadian imports from the Middle East accounted for 0.2% of its total imports, while Canadian exports to the Middle East accounted for about 0.1% of our total exports. In the aftermath of the Second World War, Canada's foreign policy shifted. Canada embraced a role as a leading middle power when it came to the United Nations and the international community at large. The post-45 period saw Canada carve out a space that sought to define what this meant, and much of this approach, as explained by Prime Minister Mackenzie King, was based around functionalism. Effectively, Nations should be part of international bodies insofar as they could provide significant contributions to the particular issue at hand. And thus Canada, who had emerged from the war as one of the world's wealthiest nations, played a fairly active role in post-war planning bodies. For instance, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. At the same time that Canada was carving out its middle power role, Britain was struggling both at home and abroad. The British economy was suffering greatly in the aftermath of the war. The British treasury was effectively broke even after massive donations from both Canada and the United States in the amount of billions of dollars. And at the same time, militant Zionist groups were carrying out campaigns of terror against the British authority in Palestine, for instance, blowing up a wing of the King David Hotel in 1946, and continual violence between Arabs and Jews was posing a serious challenge to British authority. In January of 1947, the British attempted another solution with what has been known as the Bevan Plan. Effectively, the plan called for 4,000 Jews to be allowed to immigrate to Palestine every month for two years, after which Jewish immigration would be conditional on United Nations and Arab agreements. Palestine would be transformed into a UN trusteeship with local autonomy for both Arabs and Jews, and after four years, there would be elections to decide the political future of Palestine, and if this process could not come to a conclusion, a UN trusteeship council would make the final decision. This was a pretty good plan. The British cabinet approved this plan, but both Arabs and Jews rejected it. And thus, because of this rejection, in April of 1947, Britain formally referred the question of Palestine to the United Nations. Now, Palestine was not just a British problem, it was an international one, and this was an issue that Canada could no longer ignore. You see, for Canada, the United Nations was seen as vital for the future of the international community. It was vital that the UN's legitimacy be enforced and showcased to the world, if the UN could not settle this issue, its legitimacy, like that of the League of Nations before it, could already be called into question. Secondly, though, Canada understood that if this issue was not solved, the region could and would descend into further bloodshed, putting strain on an already tense international situation with the Cold War battle lines emerging and even potentially providing an opening for Soviet influence into the region. 
Canada needed the UN to work. Canada invested in the UN working. And thus now, the Palestine question needed to be solved. At this point, it gets a bit complicated as to how the United Nations approached this issue. The first thing the UN did was set up a formal session in order to discuss and guide the process by which eventually a special committee would be selected and formed. Canada's leading UN envoy and recent ambassador to the US, Lester B. Pearson, was selected to chair that session and it began on the morning of the 28th of April, 1947. Pearson guided the session ably, and in a fairly complicated combination of a session and then what was called a first committee, a direction was finally decided upon, one that was adopted by the UN General Assembly, and it was this. The UN would establish a special committee on Palestine, so the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, or UNSCOP, or UNSCOP. It would include representatives from 11 member states. These states were Czechoslovakia, Iran, the Netherlands, Peru, Sweden, Uruguay, Guatemala, Yugoslavia, Australia, India, and Canada. Interestingly, the U.S. advocated publicly for Canada to be on this committee. The Canadian appointees to the committee were Supreme Court Judge Ivan Cleveland Rand and his alternate, Leon Mayrand, a career Canadian diplomat. Representing the Jewish people of Palestine were two liaisons from the Jewish Agency. This was a non-profit Jewish organization that facilitated Jewish migration to Palestine. Invited to represent the Arab people was the Arab High Committee. This was a national organization representing various Palestinian Arab interests, but the High Committee refused to send liaisons and chose instead to boycott the entire proceedings, claiming that the UN and the Special Committee was already biased against Arab people. We can only speculate at how the presence of Jewish liaisons and the lack of representation of the Arab High Committee affected the Special Committee's conclusions. By mid-June, the UNSCOP members were in Palestine beginning their work. At the very same time, the Arab High Committee called for a one-day general strike to protest their arrival in Palestine as well. On the same day that they arrived, the British military court sentenced three Ergen prisoners to death. During their time in Palestine, the United Nations members were warmly welcomed by various Jewish communities, whereas they were often ignored, insulted, or coldly received by Arab leaders following the example set by the Arab High Committee. The UN members spent a month in Palestine, and by the end of his time there, so we're talking mid-July, Ivan Rand had come to several key conclusions. One, that the British mandate needed to end as soon as possible. Two, the Jews must have a state of their own in Palestine. And three, that partition was the only hope for a solution. At the same time that the committee was in Palestine, another major issue was to bear influence on the UN's final decision, and that was the issue of Jewish displaced persons in Europe. 
Something like a quarter million Jewish people had yet to return home from the regions where they were transported to during the German attempt at the final solution. And many of these people simply did not want to return home and sought instead to migrate to Palestine. This issue of Jewish displaced persons became linked to the UN's view on creating a Jewish state in Palestine, a place for this quarter a million diaspora to go. Now, Rand himself favored a partition into two states, a Jewish state and whatever political decision the Arabs of Palestine chose for their political future. Interestingly, he also advocated for some ties between the eventual two partitioned regions, for instance, a customs and monetary union, a common communication system, and a permanent subsidy to be paid from the Jewish to the Arab state, because in Rand's opinion, a Palestinian Arab state was going to struggle to be economically viable. Rand was not alone in his thoughts. Most members of the committee had left Palestine favoring partition as the only viable option. Yet, what partition was supposed to look like, what state received what territory, the economic situation of those states, and so much more was in and of itself a huge, complicated debate. Frankly, a debate it didn't seem like the committee was actually going to solve to anyone's satisfaction. On the 29th of August, 1947, the UN Special Committee made its final report to the UN. The key aspects of the report that were adopted immediately were the termination of the mandate and the granting of independence to Palestine, as well as the right of free access to holy places was guaranteed. Now, a minority of representatives on the committee argued for a federation of sorts between a Jewish and Arab state. Yet, the plan that was eventually adopted was the one favored by seven member states, and this is known as the Majority Report. The supporting states for the Majority Report included Canada, Czechoslovakia, Guatemala, the Netherlands, Peru, Sweden, and Uruguay. Now, their plan called for the creation of an Arab state, a Jewish state, and an international trusteeship that would administer Jerusalem. This plan would give the Arabs 42.88% of the total area of Palestine, while 56.47% of it would go to the new Jewish state. Yet it was clear that the best territory in terms of industry and farming, etc., was being granted to the Jewish state. As well, the new Palestinian state, based on the majority plan, would be made up of non-contiguous territories, so regions not connected. And as one can imagine, when the report was released on the 1st of September 1947, it was rejected by the Arab High Committee. At this point, it was becoming clear that a conclusion that both sides would accept seemed less and less likely. Now, Louis Saint Laurent, who was in the process of replacing Mackenzie King as leader of the Liberal Party, made it clear in Canada that the strengthening of the United Nations needed to become a cornerstone of Canadian foreign affairs. Thus, whatever the UN decided on this issue needed to be backed by Canada. 
In late September 1947, Britain's colonial secretary informed the UN that Britain would accept the ending of the mandate, but would not help implement any plan that wasn't agreed to by both sides. Later that very same day, the U.S. made it clear it would support the partition plan with some territorial adjustments. Now, while there was some debate amongst Canada's leading diplomats at the U.N., Canada's final position was that partition was necessary as neither the Arabs nor the Jews would come to any agreement. J.L. Isley, Canada's Minister of Justice and head of Canada's U.N. delegation that fall, wrote, and I quote, We are voting for the partition plan because it is, in our judgment, the best of four unattractive and difficult alternatives. On the 29th of November, 1947, the U.N. General Assembly voted on partition. 33 nations, including Canada, voted in favor. 13 were opposed, and 11 abstained. The partition of Palestine received its two-thirds majority. While the Jewish diaspora celebrated, the Arab delegation walked out of the assembly. The British announced they would end the mandate in May 1948, and from the end of 1947 until that day, Palestine was plunged into further violence and chaos. In the end, there were no political institutions that Britain could pass on control of the mandate to. The Arab and Jewish communities were left to struggle between themselves, and violence was the result. From December 1947 onwards, the UN attempted to work out a proposal for a provisional regime to oversee Palestine after the British left, but nothing concrete came out of this. On the 14th of May, 1948, Britain officially withdrew from Palestine. A new state of Israel was immediately declared. Sixteen minutes later, the United States, and then shortly after that, the USSR recognized this new country. The borders of this new country were set forth in the UNSCOP majority plan. Within 24 hours of the creation of Israel, the newest country on the planet was at war with Egypt, Syria, and other neighboring Arab states. Controversially, Canada delayed its recognition of Israel, hoping that there would be some measurable effort to achieve a peace and then find an actual two-state solution, something more in line with the hopes of the majority report, but hopes was all that it was. By December of 1948, the foreign policy prerogative of supporting the United Nations, along with ensuring diplomatic alignment with the United States led to Canada recognizing the state of Israel. The next year, the 11th of May, 1949, Canada voted in favor of Israel's admission to the United Nations. Despite what was written in the majority report, a Palestinian state still does not exist. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Friends.